they were utterly exasperated. Roman Catholic and Protestant leaders of the 16th century were frustrated in their efforts to find and stop certain men that they called runners or truants. These truant runners, these escape artists who were never found where they belonged, were really just itinerant Anabaptist preachers. They traveled throughout Europe teaching doctrines that the Roman and Protestant churches deemed heretical. These men proclaimed, for instance, that believers, not infants, should be baptized. They taught that one must be born again to hold membership in a local church. They believed religious faith could not be enforced by the state. And so there was a great attempt on the part of the Protestants and the Roman church to squelch such teachings, and some local officials went so far as to make it illegal for a preacher to leave his parish. That is just a general village area. So a preacher could not walk past the borders of his town. That would keep the preachers from going from place to place and teaching these supposedly heretical doctrines which we hold dear today. But these courageous preachers kept on traveling. They traveled from one secretive place to another. They met in caves, in barns, in weaver's shops, in forests, proclaiming the truth of God's Word to hungry hearers. They'd been doing this for several hundred years. And they became quite skilled at avoiding capture as a group. The frustrated dean of Notre Dame of Arras complained that when these traveling preachers set out for a clandestine meeting, a private meeting somewhere, I quote, he said, they first rub an ointment on their palms as well as on a stick, an ointment supplied to them by the devil. Then they straddle this stick and fly to whatever place they wish to go over cities and forests and lakes. The poor Dalt was so frustrated, he thought they flew on broomsticks to go from place to place. He couldn't find them. Well, here we are 500 years later, and we're still traveling from place to place with the gospel. And today we do fly. Today, Bible believers of all stripes, including many Protestants, understand that Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations demands travel. The risen Christ said to his disciples, you will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria. Think of it in context. That was a challenging thought. And to the end of the earth. A narrow but monumental swath of the history of that mission is detailed for us in the book of Acts which reveals a distinct program by which the gospel is advanced through the earth. Jesus rises from the dead to pay the penalty of sin. Jesus commissions his followers in the city of Jerusalem. From that place, they must go, and others through them to the far reaches of the earth. How that process continues we find revealed in the book of Acts. We find, first of all, that in this program there is proclamation. That is, pioneering believers travel to proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard the message of Christ crucified and risen for the redemption of those who believe. 
They are taking a message people have never heard. The second aspect is formation. Believers gather in churches which serve as beachheads from which the gospel is sounded forth. And then the third is edification. Those churches are systematically built up in the faith and spiritually stabilized so that they become increasingly effective at living and proclaiming the gospel in their communities as well as supporting and sending evangelists throughout the world. Proclamation, formation, and edification. This process takes place in one place and from there in other places and continues until the entire globe is reached with the message of Christ. And notice that it is not with a bomb. It is not with a gun. It is not with manipulation. It is not through even the media. It is through speech. Through one person facing another and proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That evangelist may present to many people at once, but generally will come down to two people looking eye to eye and talking about what Jesus did in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Proclamation, formation into churches, and the edification of those churches so that they are strong in the truth of God and capable of reaching others with that same truth. Let's look at Acts chapter 13 as we see this fleshed out for us in this history of the early church. Acts chapter 13. We could pick various places in the book of Acts to demonstrate all of this, but for now we will just stop briefly and in a very cursory manner at these chapters. We're pursuing something fairly distinct here today as I report on our mission to Africa and so sketching quite quickly through these passages. But let's remember again what we learn about the early church. Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They identified with them and sent them to travel to take the message and to proclaim it. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You see their itinerary here, their travel plan. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Pathos, they came upon a certain magician, and his story is told here. But you notice again, they're leaving an established church that has been edified in the true faith where Paul has preached with Barnabas for over a year. This church, in its strength, God chooses to send out these representatives to proclaim the gospel, and they do. And some of the accounts and the details of what took place on this mission are here for us in the book of Acts. We won't take time to read through them. But verse 13, verse 13 of chapter 13, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, 
If you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and he begins to preach. We have his message here as he proclaims the gospel to these who have not trusted in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. We don't know if they've ever even heard the name of Christ. But Paul is proclaiming the gospel. Verse 44 of this same chapter. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The people coming to hear what Paul is saying about the gospel. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, now he quotes the Old Testament. This has all been prophesied. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Notice that, the ends of the earth. They will need to go from Jerusalem with this gospel, proclaiming it. And if it's the ends of the earth, there aren't Jews to the ends of the earth. You're going to proclaim it in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth you will proclaim it cross-culturally to non-Jews, Gentiles. This is all taking place, Paul says, as the Jews reject the gospel here at this place. How do the Gentiles respond? How should we respond? should have goose pimples right now. They jump up with joy and say, they hear this and then begin rejoicing, verse 48, and glorifying the word of the Lord as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. God has his people in these various places and some respond to the message and they rejoice that the word has come to Gentiles. God's saving purposes now are not run through a Gentile becoming a Jew now are going directly to the Gentiles. And that's, I would imagine, most of us, if not every one of us here today. The gospel has come to the Gentiles by the proclamation of Paul and others. He ministers in other places. And then let's move to chapter 14 and notice verse 19. Chapter 14 and verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. This isn't particularly a safe process. There are people who don't like what you're doing. You imagine standing with people circled around you holding rocks and they start throwing them at you and the next thing you know you're down on the ground bleeding perhaps to death as they continue to hit you with rocks. That was his reception as he took the gospel. That's what it took to proclaim Christ crucified and risen. Didn't surprise Paul. Jesus was crucified. What more could we expect when we take the gospel to people who don't want to hear it? Verse 20, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. He wasn't dead. And on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city. I, I think that is one of the most amazing statements in the book of Acts. This man has just gotten up off the ground. People perceived him to be dead. And he gets up and goes to the next town and preaches the gospel. Now, I know what's in me. Maybe you are made of different stuff, but I think I'd you know, be thinking of retirement right about the time I healed 20 months after the stoning. 
They anoint Paul's body, probably with olive oil, patch him up with bandages, cloth, and he goes right back to preaching. I wouldn't imagine he looked too good. He wasn't looking all prim and proper, preaching a health and wealth gospel. He was standing before them bleeding and bandaged, and he continues to proclaim the truth. When they had preached the gospel to that city, verse 21, and had made many disciples, God gives fruit to this man who gets back up and goes at it again. They return to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. That is amazing. Right back down the path where he's run into all the trouble. And what does he do? Having proclaimed the gospel of Christ, now verse 22, notice it, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We talk about a preacher whose message conforms to reality. There he is with these scars and says it's going to be many tribulations. But notice that he does not simply proclaim the message of Christ and get out of there. He comes back to strengthen, to form the churches, and then to edify and encourage and build them up so that they're solid in the faith. Where Christians are weak in faith, they're very poor witnesses. And the church is a very poor place for believers to come and to grow. So he strengthens them and edifies them and encourages them. In verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That is, Paul finds individuals within the assembly who are qualified to lead that church spiritually. Shepherds at heart. Men who have the maturity and the strength. And this is very early in the game. But men in whom God has been working. And he chooses these individuals to serve as elders, as spiritual leaders of the church, and to stabilize it. These guys are going to basically stay home. They're going to stay in this place for the most part, and to build up the church. Now from Jerusalem then, where Jesus dies, rises, and baptizes his disciples in the Spirit, believers eventually travel with the gospel, and eventually, in the story, they've come here. They've come here to the shores of America. It took a very long time, but they got here. They brought the message, and we gather today as a church of Jesus Christ, thousands of miles from Jerusalem, and hundreds of years later, But as a beachhead for the gospel, it is now our responsibility to discern how God is uniquely leading this assembly to contribute to the gospel enterprise. Look at us. We're a small bunch. There are some things we're not going to be able to do. But there are some things that God will enable us to do, to participate in this work. In the 1980s, Eden Baptist Church passed through the formation stage as a church. The gospel had been proclaimed here, obviously, for a very long time, but we came together as a church and were formed at that place and time. Since that time, we have continued in a process of stabilization and edification as an assembly, and God has blessed us uniquely. Where are we today as we reach this region? from what we can touch just from this particular location. Where are we today? Just running through it, in my mind, I thought of many ways in which the gospel is shining forth from this assembly. Not as well as it should. Not as well as I hope that it will as we continue to stabilize and grow. 
But we must consider there are individuals here who are leading people in evangelistic Bible study. They're sitting down with them and walking them through a chronological study of Scripture and teaching them the Word of God with the hope that they will come to see the light of Christ. We have a national night out outreach coming here just in a few days. Our vacation Bible school is coming as children will come here to hear the gospel of Christ proclaimed and some of us will here in just a couple of days fan out through this area and invite children to come and to hear the gospel and and God is blessed and many do come and hear the message of Jesus. We have individuals that have been leading neighborhood Bible clubs from their homes and from other homes. We have young adult and teen trips Uh, Just recently, our teen group went and went through an entire town to the west of here and handed out invitations and information for people to know where they could find Christ as Savior and invited them to come to evangelistic events. We have occasional house-to-house contact and will again this week. We have our Friends Sunday in which we invite friends and have a gospel message There are funerals that God providentially brings up and hundreds of people have heard the gospel in just the last year or two through funerals that God has providentially brought into the life of this church. We have English conversation classes where people are, where bridges are being built. We have the Shakopee Jail Ministry where the gospel is being proclaimed. We have a column in the local newspaper. We have a website. There's personal witness on daily life. There is the message of the gospel shining from this place. We need to grow. No one will take pride in any of this. But thank God the message is going out. There are people that are proclaiming Christ crucified and risen. And there are people who are finding the light. We have, and some of you here today have come even just through the ministry of this church to know Christ as your Savior, and we rejoice. Let's continue to spread it. But God has also entrusted to us human and financial resources that are sufficient to go beyond this place. He has enabled us to travel away from this place to render help to others in the gospel enterprise. And we need to recognize as an assembly that as we exercise ourselves to do this, we participate in a noble and ancient enterprise to the glory of God. So much of life hinges in how you look at it. The circumstances of life are different for all of us, but in some respects they're really not that far apart. So much of it depends on how you look at it. You have trials in your life. You have challenges in your life. So much of it is coaching our head to think the thoughts of God about those issues. That's where things are won and lost. And I think when it comes to a mission endeavor on the part of our church, you can go home and never think about it again until a pastor comes back and tells you all about it and much more than you ever really cared to know. Or you can hold the rope for him, as the analogy has been used, as he goes down into the hole. And support through prayer and through interest those who travel with the gospel to various places. How do you look at it? How do we look at it as a church? I'd like us to think through that as we go to Acts 16 and notice in verse 6. What is referred to as the Macedonian call. In verse 6, 
They, Luke retelling here the account of Paul, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. That's not something you think about very often, but here's God saying, don't tell anybody about Christ there. Which literally is, and more pointedly is, don't go there. I don't want you to travel to this place. That's not my plan for you now. Does God want the gospel preached in Asia? Yes, but not by Paul and his group. So verse 7, And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there either. Asia is a province of western Asia Minor to the northwest where Paul is, and now he passes northwest through Asia to Mysia, planning apparently to go north and east to the edge of the Black Sea. God says, no, I want you to point west to look across the Aegean Sea and to know on the other side is northern Greece, Macedonia. I want you to go there. That will eventually be the point. Verse 8, so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Here's the port city. They're going to head up now to the Black Sea, to the east and north. And a vision appeared, verse 9, to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now let's focus in verse 9 on this vision and this one who says, come to Macedonia and help us. This unidentified man apparently speaks for Macedonia and her need for someone to bring the gospel. In immediate response, Paul and his travel partners are soon positioned on the deck of a ship with prow pointed west. They had anticipated going north and east. Now they're sailing across the Aegean Sea and they hit northern Greece. To respond to this call to help us. Think of it. God doesn't need our help in proclaiming the gospel. But in His providential plan, He has included it. God uses people to build His church. There are believers entrusted with the gospel who are called to help others by traveling and proclaiming the gospel to them, helping them who respond to in, in faith to form churches. And Paul at Philippi does that in Acts 16. You can read the account there later. Then there are believers who are entrusted with helping to edify and stabilize and strengthen the fiber of these churches. He needs to travel from Asia Minor and Troas across the Aegean Sea to the west. There people respond to the gospel. There a church is formed. And that church will then be strengthened. Go back to chapter 14 and remember verse 22, the town's being listed along the way here, but verse 22, Paul is strengthening the souls of the disciples. Verse 23, he is appointing elders for them in every church. He's passed back through this area. So there's the formation of the church and then the stabilizing of the church that takes place. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. This is very interesting having just passed through this book as a church, but remember chapter 1 and verse 3, where Paul says to Timothy, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, and the rest of the book is given to teach us how to behave in the household of God. Who are the qualified leaders? How is the church to be directed? How is it to stand against false teaching? What are women to wear in the assembly? 
I mean, it gets that pointed and specific. What is Paul's job right now? He's over in Macedonia proclaiming the gospel to those who have not heard. And churches are being formed. What's Timothy's job? Here, it's not to go with Paul. It's to stay put right where he was to stabilize the church at Ephesus. And what if Timothy said, I've got to go with Paul. I've got to go overseas. I've got to be one of the travelers. Paul would have sent him home with a kick in the backside and said, get back to where I sent you. He needs to stay there at Ephesus and build the church. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, we find this clear parallel as Paul writes to Timothy. What does he, or Titus, rather. What does he say to him in verse 5, chapter 1? This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes to give the qualification for elders. You are to put in order what needs to be put in order in the assembly there on the island of Crete. Stay put. Stabilize the church there. And from that church, a beachhead will be formed where they can go out locally and evangelize the people that are around them. But they've got to be rich in doctrine. They've got to be faithful in church order. Now obviously, this is no easy task, any of this. There's a heavy cost to helping others, to travel far from home, to evangelize the lost and edify believers beyond your own borders. It'd be a lot easier and a lot less costly to just mind our own business, to just do our little church thing and forget about the rest of the world around. But there are very strong motivations for us to give ourselves away to help others in the gospel enterprise. Are you with me here? There's really strong motivations for us to think about our region and what we can touch from our local homes, but there is something also for us to consider beyond these borders, what we can do as the people of God. Some of those motivations, I think, can be drawn from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and I invite you to turn there. Let's labor here for a few minutes longer. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We need to really think of who we are and what God is saying through His Spirit to our church through the history of the early church. Now the context of 2 Corinthians 9 is what? The context here is a physical gift. That is, there are Christians in the Jerusalem church who are in financial need. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and saying, you need to help these people. I'm going to come through, we're going to arrange that a very sizable gift is taken from your church, and I'm going to take that gift to Jerusalem so that you can help the Christians who are there. But listen, if these motivations that Paul gives apply to helping other believers physically, how much more do they apply when we also help them with the gospel? So Paul strongly urges the Corinthian church to see life from God's perspective as they reach out to these people who are in Jerusalem. Think of it. One church helping another church. These people in Corinth will never get to Jerusalem. The vast majority, if any of them. It's a long, long ways away. But they need to think about the people in Jerusalem physically. And again, I would argue that there are principles here if they apply in the physical help. How much more when we offer spiritual help as well? 2 Corinthians 9, entering into that context in the middle of the discussion, verse 6. 
2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this, says Paul to the Corinthians, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The principle seems pretty clear. A farmer who sows a little seed is going to reap a little harvest. Sow righteous seed in this world, and the God of the harvest will reward you with a rich harvest of righteousness. Now, there's no necessarily obligation here, just a tremendous opportunity. It's not meant to put some guilt trip on us that's a false motivation. Notice verse 7. Each one must give as he has made up his mind. Not what the church dictates. Not under pressure from anyone, but what you know God wants you to do. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As genuine love motivates your giving, you give with joy. You want to participate in the work of God. So verse 8, And God is able then to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Hear it. Those who give liberally, willingly, and cheerfully to the cause of Christ will receive such a measure of grace from God as to have all that they will ever need to continue fulfilling every good work God gives them to do. God doesn't give me every work to do. If He gave me a million dollars, I would think I could be far more involved in the gospel of Christ, in helping it financially. He's not given me a million dollars. He's given us what He's given us to do what He wants us to do. But the issue is not wishing I had a million dollars. The issue is looking at what I have and asking God, what do you want me to do with your money? It might not be any more than a dollar bill on the part of a young person in this church. But I think some of the young people in this church, as they put their coins together, have given far more than some adults have ever or ever will give. Because God doesn't look at bottom line numbers. He looks at the heart. Willingly, courageously giving, God will make sure that you can participate to accomplish everything He wants you to accomplish in this life for the gospel. We have that guarantee. Is that not a wonderful promise? I can give money to support the gospel somewhere and wonder if I'll be impoverished, if I'll ever have money again, or something like that, to wonder, will will God supply my needs? He's saying here, don't worry about it. I own everything. All your money is mine anyway. I'll take care of you. I'm not saying that he's calling us here to be foolish or ridiculous. It's certainly not a promise by which to get rich. But he's saying if you will listen to what I'm calling you to do, you, not somebody else, but you, I will supply you with the grace to do everything I want you to do. For as it is written... Verse 9, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Quoting Psalm 112 and verse 9 as support, the psalm makes the connection between liberal, cheerful giving and a righteous standing. And Paul clarifies, God's not going to dump riches in your lap. That's not the point, verse 10. But he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God has people that he is bringing to himself in salvation throughout this world. 
he's going to get the job done. So we got two options. We can sit on our hands and say, God's going to get the job done. Or we can join him and know the joy of sowing and reaping alongside of God. What a privilege is ours. What a high calling is here. And he will, in all of this, increase the harvest of your righteousness. That should be the motivation, an increased harvest of righteousness. So I ask, do we want a piece of that action? Do we want to join in what God's going to do anyway? But do we want to join in by pouring out our resources and our efforts to join Him in the great joy of sharing the gospel with others? You will, verse 11, be enriched in every way for all your generosity, which through us will produce thanksgivings to God. Here is another motivation, another strong motivation. Remember the context is this physical gift. That gift is going to put praise in the mouth of the Jerusalem believers. Think about that, Corinthians. Do you want a piece of that? Do you want to give so that with your money you put praise in the mouth of other people? Praise to God. Paul explains what he means here in verses 12 and 14. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints. That's obvious, right? I mean, you're going to help them eat. That's a clear point. That's a good thing. It's good to want them to be able to eat. They're going to be able to eat with the gifts that you give. But, middle of verse 12, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. The grace of God here is not sitting on your hands, but getting up and pouring out your life. They're going to praise God. You're going to put praise right in their mouth to God. You want to know how to clearly glorify God? This is pretty much as objective as it can get. When what you do produces people glorifying God, giving thanks to Him and praising Him and rejoicing in God because of what you have done. These people are going to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ has changed you. It has caused you to think not naturally. Naturally, we think of me. We're in love with the mirror. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you give and pour out your life to help others in the gospel, is going to bring praise to God for that grace that he's producing in your life. And you are going to get them to praise the Lord. Eden Baptist Church, we need to understand that it is just such a contribution that this church has made in Zambia and Mozambique and South Africa. We have sown seed in the harvest of the gospel among people who were asking for our help. We did not come into regions where we said, will you permit us to do our thing? And they kind of put up with us and receive our gifts. We've gone to places to spread the gospel and to edify the church where people are saying as much as this man from Macedonia, will you come over and help us? 
I wonder how engaged we are to sense what God is doing and how he is using us. Let's remember these pastors in Zambia. For four days, for seven hours, they sat on these cement blocks in the cold with fire, ashes blowing through the windows. Some of them, three in this group, taking their bicycles 90 miles. And these aren't nice bicycles. There's no gears. Might be a brake. 90 miles to sit and to eat up God's Word. I shared the book of 1 Timothy from verse 1 to the end of the last chapter. And they were pleading that I'd keep going. Please teach us 2 Timothy was the request I heard most. Please teach us Titus. We not only talked through 1 Timothy, but as we went through 1 Timothy, these church leaders in very difficult situations said, we need to talk about this. Tell us about this. We talked delivering one over to Satan, a kind of horrifying phrase in chapter 1 and verse 20, but what does that mean? What is church discipline? I said, how many of you need to think about this? And they said, keep talking, tell us about it. What do we do? How do we hold people accountable in the church? I took a whole evening session after a long day of teaching and talked through just the very simple basics of church discipline, of holding one another accountable to the call of God upon believers' lives. These are fairly reserved people. They're very quiet. When I got done, they broke into applause. It's just amazing. They're saying, please help us. If there was any request more than if I would teach 2 Timothy, we didn't have the time. I knew we wouldn't, but I always said if we have the time, I will. <laughs> and I knew we wouldn't. It was sad. But the other was, can you give us your notes? You have to understand, these men never in a hundred years would earn enough money to copy the notes that I had. I had 90 pages of notes front and back through 1 Timothy. And I've been assured that by getting the notes to these guys, they will pour over those notes and they'll drink them in. They don't all know English very well, but they can operate in the written text pretty well. In fact, uh, the Lamba language is fairly basic, and so there's a lot of English they'll just be talking in Lamba and all of a sudden jump into English because it provides them more words. And so many of their theological words come from English, and they will pour over those notes, and they are living by those ideas. They're saying this to me, that we have seen many things that we need to develop. They're not paid, any of them. They're all peasant farmers, and yet they're pastoring churches. Talk about adding a headache to a headache. They love God. They want to do what's right. One of these men, I looked at his field, Probably five acres of tomatoes, all dead on the vine. Lost the whole crop. It's just a struggle to survive and to stay alive. But yet they pastor churches and lead churches on the side. Not paid. Problem of missionaries. Paid for the pastors for years and then left. Churches have not developed the thought of 
supporting their pastors. So we talk through that, how these guys need to talk to their churches, that getting the church to support you is good for the church. Getting the church to enrich you is bad for everybody. But getting them to support you so that you can study the Word of God and do a better job at shepherding their souls is good for them. They need to understand that, and you need to be bold, because the Scripture is bold and says that you should be paid. Wow, amazing conversations. They needed our help. They wanted our help. They came for the help. This is Rodwell, one of the prize students in the class. He's lived in this house for 40 years. It's now his. Three of his six daughters, three are gone. About 15, 16, they marry and leave. He's really bummed because he's a farmer. He's got six girls. He really wanted a boy. God has used this man richly. I read the letter that was written as we left that place by one of the students, Rodwell's friend, and a really sharp man. This one that rode about 90 miles to get to this teaching location. He said, firstly, I want to say, and I'm quoting from his letter, I'm adjusting a bit so the English works. You know, some foolish Americans go and make fun of them for not speaking English right. That makes me so mad. <laughs> I just get so riled. We get put in our place when in uh, Kevin's church, Capano Baptist, he asked them how many languages they spoke. He quit at 11 and people were still raising their hand. So they might not speak English exactly like we do, but they know way more than we do about language. So I've adjusted his writing, but try to hear the call for help and the appreciation that he conveys to me and to you. And when it's to me, I look at that as to us, because you sent me. Firstly, he said, I want to say that it is not an easy thing to accept traveling a very long way from America to Zambia. This is a guy that rode 90 miles on a bike. He's worried about us sitting in a seat with a television in front and food going down your throat. and It's amazing. But only one who accepts the will of God would do this. We also want to thank Pastor Dan's church who made it possible. Possible for him to come here. We also want to thank you for the food contributions that we have received. It has made our stay easier here. Last year, you remember the kitchen, those that were here the hour before, where they're cooking outside, they ran out of food. And not only are they sitting on these benches and sleeping on the ground on one blanket, but they ran out of food. I wasn't the one who did that. Uncle Phil, the guy who taught with me, the 77-year-old South African, he gave them money, and they ate well. And I ate with them a few meals, and it wasn't very good. But they ate a lot, at least. And they were happy. We've been here for two weeks, in which all our energies have been exhausted, he says. They were there a week before me, learning as well. Nevertheless, our brothers have also assisted in the photocopying of notes. I really felt like a rich man when I walked into that office and had them copy 90 pages for 36 students. It was like a major 
problem to the business. They, I mean, we had to have a big conference with a whole bunch of people talking about how we're going to get this done. And I really felt wealthy when I laid down 350,000 kwacha. That's their dollar bill to pay what was equivalent to about $90 in something they, they would never be able to produce. And he acknowledges that here. And they so prize that material. We couldn't have afforded it, he says. Pastor Dan, Uncle Phil, we want to assure you that we are really grateful for your fellowship and also for the teaching we've received. You may not recognize the importance of the work you have invested in our lives, but we have gained abundantly in the things of God. There's the praise in the mouth. We have gained abundantly in the things of God. You have encouraged and strengthened us. There's the stabilization of the churches. Therefore, we highly appreciate your coming here. Lastly, we send our regards to your families through you. May the Lord of hosts richly bless you. As you travel back. There is 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 through 14, in a modern picture, in a contemporary setting. In Mozambique, there was more involvement with evangelism. This is the main road. This is the, as good a road as we saw there, basically, in a very remote and backward region, a very needy village, needy of the gospel. And there were those who I was somewhat involved in that. Others did a lot of the hard work. I was able to preach one night to a gathering from here. Some pictures from Dumela. Some of the young people that we reached out to there through uh, activities and Bible stories, a VBS type of setting. I didn't do any of that work, but here's a preaching event with our supported missionary and what Kevin Zach does, we do in a small piece as we partner with him. Tremendous preacher and very, very uniquely gifted to, to speak in these kinds of settings. I struggled a lot more. But I preached on the holiness of God from Isaiah chapter 6 to a packed house. And then also here in Mozambique, we taught through 1 Timothy a little faster. These men were far more behind. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, holding a Bible, owning a Bible qualifies them to be a church leader. But we had to look at Scripture and say that's not the case. Some had multiple wives. We had to talk through how they could give leadership to their church without pastoring the church and how to prepare the next generation to work past polygamy in a place where it's highly revered because there's so few men due to 34 years of war. But as these men left, there was such heartfelt thanks and they talked about ways in which this teaching would change the churches of this region of Mozambique as they put it into practice. Now they've got to put it into practice, but God willing, they will. This man in the suit, very important leader in the region and in the churches there with multiple wives. Not the pastor, but there he is on the motorcycle with his suit and tie. This was so important for him that even though riding on a dirt road for 20 miles to get to this place, he brought a suit and tie and wore it every day. He outclassed me. He's got it stuffed in his suitcase there with his blanket, which is what he slept on, and now he's riding off into the sunset in a very, on a very dangerous road because he was going to be there for this teaching. First time this has been done there.
with the leaders, and they were filled with words of thanksgiving. They didn't write you anything because they don't know English that well. In fact, I could never talk to any of them. Uh, at Zambia, I could talk to all the students. Here, I could talk to none of them because their English is, is not strong enough, and my Shangon is in really bad shape. Mulashani, that's not even Shangon, that's Lamba. I, I can't even say a word, I don't think, in, in Shangon. But in South Africa, with the Kapano Baptist Church, and this is a story I want to tell at a later date, but with our supported missionary, Kevin Zacharias, and leading that church and his fine family, what a joy to be with them, and, and how exciting to see the work that they're doing, and to know that our investment there is well worth the effort. And so thankful. I, I can't wait to tell you the story about this church. But we also laid out our gifts to help physically with this particular ministry. There was $1,650 that were given just to give to them, along with expenses that were given to them. So our, this is, I'll tell you, this is a joy that I can't really hardly express. But we come to these places where we teach overseas and we cover our expenses, and then we come with a gift from the church. It's just so fun to give them that. I, I wish you could all have that experience. But to, it's just not a common thing. Often their people come and it's, it's expensive for them to house people and to host them in that way. But this church brought together 1650 just to be a blessing to them as a, as a family, along with $2,500 in expenses, along with the pay of your pastor that was there for over three weeks and the compensation that didn't stop. You didn't stop paying for my family and for my care here when I went. That adds to, I think, the investment that we made in this trip. There was the Rosemeyer's job and the, uh, the, the beautiful flooring that was laid on an earlier trip that we saw, and uh, so fitting and so useful and beautiful for their home. The first man that greeted me in this church was very, very drunk. <laughs> the first guy that greeted me. And he planted a big old wet kiss on my hand. I've never had that experience. Kevin came up to me right, at, right as he did that. He said, but you've never been kissed by a man like that before. And I said, no, I haven't. This drunk man also gave a testimony in the church that night. Everything's pretty spontaneous. And he walked up, and Kevin and the interpreting pastor also walked up to bring him down. And they stopped, and they let him go. I didn't understand a word he was saying, but afterwards they said he didn't say anything wrong. He was saying he needed God. He needed to search for God, and he wasn't a believer, and he was glad to be in church. They thought, we might as well let him say that. He's kind of making the point. And uh, every very spontaneous, people just come up and sing a song, and every soloist that got up, this man was singing right with them <laughs> in his drunken stupor, and he would greet them when they came back down and shake their hand and just encourage them that they'd done a wonderful job. And he was really beginning to be disruptive when the call of nature took care of him, and it was good. He kind of left for the rest of the service. But uh, this is a place where many in the assembly would come drunk when this church started. But this village is changing. And it was exciting to see the evidences of that. This church is changing this village. This guy was the norm. When we were there, he was the exception. And there is a great respect that's developing for Pastor Zach and for his family and the work that they're doing here. Amazing. I wish I could tell you the story. I, I know i got to quit. Our last Sunday there, 
I spoke. The message that I preached on that Sunday night, we prayed for fruit. Uh, we prayed for tangible fruit. I think there's all kinds of evidences of it. But I'm telling you about Capano just here in this service, and we will quit here soon. But I tell you this because on this night I preached from John 10, and there were two women one from a new village that this village is evangelizing, and one woman from this village that had come to church for, I think, six months. She had her little baby wrapped on her back, and these two women, after the service, responded. And I had the privilege to talk with them in English, to share the gospel more pointedly, more clearly to them. And Pastor Zach was there as well, and also a Mary, an interpreter, who just to make sure everybody understood each other, and Pastor Zach proposed that I would pray as we've shared the gospel with them. And as I prayed, they both began to repeat the words after me. I didn't ask them to do that. So following that cue, we just prayed the sinner's prayer, I guess, if you want to put a word to it. And they both responded in faith. We will see if they know the Lord. If the fruit is there and evidence that it was truly conversion. But it certainly seemed to be sincere. And by the grace of God, someday, I hope, that you'll be sitting in heaven somewhere and somebody come up to you and through a long conversation you'll figure out it's one of those women. Your prayers and your gifts enabling us to go to this far place is bearing fruit. And I believe according to Luke chapter 16 and verse 9 that we will see this fruit in eternity. We're creating friends forever. May we keep traveling with the gospel and helping others in the cause of Christ. Some of you may be thinking, I wish I could go. It really doesn't seem fair that one person goes. I think there's some churches making some real mistakes right now and sending all kinds of people that are getting in the way and are causing trouble and are spending huge amounts of money just so they can go somewhere. The point isn't going. The point is seeking the will of God and discerning what He wants us to do. But please understand this. Do you imagine that if you had a conversation with God, He would say to you, Eden Baptist Church, well, why don't you go like your pastor goes? Not at all. Everyone who gave and prayed, everyone who participated in the anxieties of this whole thing, were direct participants in it. God assigns to each of us different roles, different responsibilities. But every one of us that contributes to make this happen is part of the fruit of it. I don't think God will say, why weren't you there? He will say, you were there. You were there in spirit. You were part of everything that happened for God's glory. We together as a church have accomplished this work. We've gone to a place where there has been a call for help, and we've proclaimed the gospel of Christ and built up the church. We together will receive a harvest of righteousness if we've been engaged. Only a few can actually travel in this way. Only a few should, but many, many contribute. And as we continue to do this, may we know that God will supply our needs to fulfill everything that He wants this church to do. If you look at the bottom line, we have hurt ourselves financially. This cost us big time to do this. 
But if you look at it from God's perspective, this didn't cost us anything. There's no suffering that we're doing. All we have done is reap a harvest of righteousness. There are churches that have been built up. There are people perhaps that have come to know the Lord. At least the gospel has been proclaimed to several hundred people by the mercies of God. I believe we've made a significant contribution for the cause of Christ. Having been called to help, God has given us safety and success in this ministry, and we give Him the glory. Let's keep traveling. Let's keep traveling overseas. Let's keep traveling through this neighborhood, through other neighborhoods, and through this region as we share the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. This is not a recruitment effort. This is an effort of the joy in our heart in knowing God pouring out to others. And when someone says, help me, what a joy to lift up that end and to help them. We've done that. God has used us to this end. I hope there's joy in our heart and rejoicing for what He has done. This whole thing could have fallen apart a hundred times. There were dangers aplenty all along. But God did it. He brought us home with success in the gospel. And we need to praise Him for it for the rest of our time together as a church until He takes us home. Let's give Him thanks as we pray.